Ambrose was born in 339 AD in the village of Belica in Gaul, which is modern-day Germany. His father served as governor over the province there, and he himself being educated in Roman law in Rome itself. He entered into the emperor's service and served as the governor of Milan. It was during his time as he led there the, the nation uh, in Milan that the bishop there grew ill, and Alexander was seeking to appoint someone who would fill that role. Ambrose was seen as a fitting replacement, and his appointment, however, did not come without opposition. Many desired to see a bishop who believed in and supported the heresy of Arius, who denied the deity of Christ. But wisdom prevailed, and Ambrose moved from civil leadership into the realm of religion. Many loved him because of his faithfulness to Christ. He was a gentle leader and truly a godly man. His nature was gentle, and he, his character is one that rose above the rest. He was willing to stare down the fiercest opposition as he served as bishop. In fact, at one point in his ministry there, uh, Theodos, the emperor, who had killed 7,000 Thessalonians, traveled to Milan and wanted to attend the Lord's Day service and take communion, where Ambrose would stand up and publicly rebuke him, the emperor of Rome, and tell him that you are not permitted to the table. How will you lift up prayer, the hands still dripping with blood, Ambrose would say, of those whom you've murdered? Get out of here and do not dare to add another crime to the one you've already committed. Ambrose stood down with great fortitude the evil that was around him. And eventually, by the grace of God, the emperor would repent and be reconciled to Ambrose and to the church. He serves as an example, I believe, to each of us of Really, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Someone who's willing to stand on the truth, to truly count the cost. He could have been executed for standing so boldly against the emperor of Rome, but grace prevailed. He was an excellent teacher and preacher. In fact, many would call him the doctor of the church because of his thoughtful writings and deep theological reflections. One name that is more associated with Ambrose than Theodos himself would be a student of his, a name by, by the name of Augustine. Years later, in 384, Augustine would go and travel to Milan to hear Ambrose's fa uh, famous allegories. This is what Ambrose became known for, was his allegorical preaching. And so Augustine would go and, and there become his student, be discipled by him. And be influenced by his philosophy. And Augustine then would transform Christian thinking forever. In fact, you and I worship and sing, preach and teach, all because of the impact of Augustine in the life of Christianity. And that was attributed to a man who is willing to stand on the truth no matter the cost. It is a reminder to us that disciples of Jesus are committed to the truth. The teachings of Jesus are central to the people of God. And we are willing, at whatever the cost, to defend the truth, even if it costs us our very lives. This is what Jesus has been seeking to teach his disciples. 
You'll be reminded in the Gospel of Luke where we find ourselves is a long section, a journey from Jesus' ministry in Galilee to Jerusalem. Where, of course, Jesus will culminate His ministry by dying on the cross and being raised again and ascend into heaven. He has sent out the 72 to learn hands-on training about how to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. He, he has sent out these missionaries to evangelize the surrounding communities in which they're traveling, to call them to repentance and faith, and to announce the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The work of the disciple we learned last week was to be consumed with proclamation. That the work that you and I are to take up in everyday aspect of our lives is to tell others about Jesus. Are you telling others about Jesus? That is our work. And this week, our focus shifts from the work of the disciple to the character of the disciple. Namely, what does our life look like? What do we give ourselves to? Where is our focus? Where is our priority? And two things you'll see this morning in our text, that the priority of the disciple is that of hearing and speaking. Hearing and speaking. Hearing the word of the Lord. Obeying His word. Studying His word. And speaking to God through prayer. That as we study the word, our response is to pray. That the, that the study of Scripture leads us to pray. And so these two ideas is, is what we want to think about this morning in Luke chapter 10. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 38 through chapter 11, verse 13. It's found on page 869 in the Pew Bibles, or it should, thereabout. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that one home, read it, seek to know God better through it. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up to give you anything. I tell you, 
though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But friend, I hope you saw those two verbal ideas of hearing and speaking. That the life of the disciple is marked by the priority of the Word and prayer. The Word and prayer. That as Christians we must prioritize the hearing of the Word and our desperate need to respond to it through prayer. My hope this morning is that you walk away with an ordered priority in your life. That your life, that my life, is transformed by this Word. That we make the Word and prayer not secondary to so many other things, but primary in our lives. That we ought to be about listening and speaking. Listening to God and speaking to God. That this, my friend, is what characterizes the life of a disciple. That the life of the disciple is marked by these two priorities. So if you take notes this morning, two main points. Number one, that our lives ought to be marked by a perpetual fellowship with God through hearing His Word. We're going to see a correlation between fellowship with God, seen in Mary, and hearing God's Word. That there is a relationship between our fellowship with God and our hearing. Secondly, that the life of the disciple is marked by a persistent trust in God through prayer. A persistent trust in God through prayer. This is what our lives are to be marked by. Number one, a perpetual fellowship with God through hearing His Word. Perhaps a familiar story to many of us about Martha and Mary. We're told that as Jesus makes his travels to Jerusalem, he happens upon the house of some close friends. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that this seems strange because Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus Lazarus, lives in Bethany, which is just a few miles outside of the city. And you might think, well, by golly, he's made it all the way to Jerusalem like that. Remember, Luke is writing to us an orderly account not a chronological account. When Luke says to Theophilus, I write to you an orderly account of the things you've come to know and believe, that does not mean that he is sequentially ordering the events of this gospel to line up chronologically with what Jesus did in his three years of ministry. So so this is chronologically out of order. Because Luke has a goal which is bigger than giving biography. The Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ are not biography. In the sense of 
the way we understand of just communicating certain facts about a person's life. No, no, no. There's more. This is theology. He is seeking to teach Theophilus about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so this fits within that particular theme in the narrative. And so we are told, after all, that Jesus travels to this village and enters into the house of Martha. Perhaps Martha was wealthy, perhaps she was widowed, that we don't know much of, but we know that she is hosting the Savior. That there is an existing relationship that we are not told about that they have with Jesus. And so she welcomes, and like any good homeowner, like any good hospitable person, she throws Jesus a wonderful feast and wants to wine and dine him the best that she can. But she gets no help from her sister Mary. We are told that while Martha is running around seeking to provide everything she can and really serve Jesus, I mean, after all, Jesus is there. She wants to impress him by her service, by by all her wonderful cooking. She wants to demonstrate the kind of hospitality that you and I only hope to somewhat hold up to. Mary is seen as a barrier to Martha's service. Martha could serve Jesus so much better if Mary would just get off of her rear end and get engaged. We were told in verse 39 that she had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus, at the Lord's feet, and listened to His teaching. I mean, you get a sense of the picture in your mind. Martha is hustling and bustling, providing the meal, making sure everything, feet are washed, linens are pressed, Everything's on time. Everything is perfect for Jesus. Mary's sitting, doing nothing, but sitting and listening to Jesus. And what seems to be quite surprising is the Lord's response to Martha. No doubt Martha is growing more and more frustrated and discouraged at her sister's behavior. And we are told then in verse 40, that Martha was distracted with much serving. It gives a sense of of really where her focus was. You, You see the picture? Mary's focus is at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. Martha's focus is on much serving. It's a contrasting picture, isn't it? One who's sitting idly by, just listening to the words of Jesus, and another one actually doing something. You gotta feel a sense of Jesus' half brother James in this text. Be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. Martha was a doer. She was a doer. She was, she was the one doing the work. And Mary was just a hearer. She was just listening idly by. And so Martha goes to him there in verse 40. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Listen to the boldness in her request. Do you not care? I mean, imagine. She, she's standing before Jesus. It says, Jesus, you, you don't care, do you? You don't care about me. You don't care about what's going on in this moment. You have no care. This is the eternal Son of God who is perfect and holy and righteous. And she dares to say he doesn't care. And the reader is, is, is drawn into her story and says, yeah, Jesus, why don't you care? This woman is just sitting here listening to you, not involved in the service. Aren't we supposed to be servants? For the Son of Man did not come to 
to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Aren't we all supposed to be servants? Come on, Mary, serve. Tell her to help me, she says. She commands Jesus to do something. This is almost similar to Jesus' own mother commanding him to turn the water into wine in John chapter 2. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. He says her name twice to get her attention. This is a solemn moment. Martha, Martha, what? You are anxious and troubled about many things. Where, where Martha thought she knew Mary's heart and clearly Jesus' lack of care, Jesus in that moment exposes all of Martha in front of everyone. See, Jesus knows our hearts more than we know our own hearts. We run around saying, oh, I know my heart, you know, you know my heart. No, no, no. Only Jesus knows how wicked our hearts are. And Martha was distracted. She was anxious and troubled. She was consumed by the idol of anxiety. She was consumed. And Jesus exposes her in her sin. But one thing he says is necessary. Friend, do you see what Jesus is doing? There was one thing that was necessary in that moment. And it was not service. It was sitting at the feet of Jesus. One thing was necessary. This is what the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, that that they have an undivided devotion to the Lord. That was Mary, undivided. Mary had one focus, and that was Jesus. Martha was distracted. She was anxious. She was consumed. This is what Jesus would teach His disciples in just a few chapters in Luke chapter 12. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Mary was consumed by the Lord and His Word. She was listening intently, hanging on to every word that Jesus was saying. And Martha was consumed with service. Where Mary was seeking to learn how to follow Jesus, Martha was distracted with serving Jesus. We are told here who was in the right. It is quite head-scratching, isn't it? And no way is Jesus teaching here in this moment that service is wrong. So if you get from this, okay, we don't need to serve, that's not the point of the story. Service comes after you sit under the Word. Our service ought to flow from the Word, not be a replacement for the Word. You know where I'm going. It's all right. There's so many of us that only come to Sunday, the Lord's Day service, when we're coming to serve in nursery or children's church. But we never sit under the Word any other week. We're like Martha. Oh, we're busy. Oh, you don't know all the things I do for this church and all the ways I serve this church. And friend, we want to commend you for that. But are you committed to hearing the Word and learning the Word? Are you distracted this morning and anxious? 
Notice here what Jesus says in verse 42. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I want you to think about this because some of you are here and you know, you know this experientially. Here it is. You're not always going to be able to serve. Your body is going to give out. You're not always going to be able to physically serve the bride of Christ the way you always have. Serving in nursery, serving behind the scenes, helping care for the building and the grounds, going and visiting the sick and widows. There's going to come a time in our life where physically we can't serve anymore. But there's one thing that can never be taken from you, friend, and that is the Word. That's what Jesus' point is. There will be time for serving, but there must be a priority of sitting under the Word to know the Word. No one can take the Word from you. I mean, think for just a moment. Your outer body is wasting away, but our inner body is being renewed day by day through the Word. And no one can take it from you. This is so wonderful. I mean, they could lock us all away and throw us in prison. And if we have committed the Word to memory, and we have studied to know the Word, no one can take that from you. No one can rob you of that. It is yours. This is why, friend, we must prioritize the Word in our life. That He is, as the psalmist cries, my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my lot. Friend, are you consumed with the Word or with service? Again, I just do not want you to misunderstand. We are not condemning service here this morning. We ought to be servants. We ought to serve more in the life of, of this church. But we must not do it at the detriment of the Word. Why? Because Romans chapter 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. It is this activity in this moment, right now in the life of our church, where the Holy Spirit gives you faith. And if you neglect this, then you will not have faith. And so we do not press this moment in the life of our church because we think that we are important, but because God is important. And this is the means by which God has given His church to give us faith. You lack faith, you go to the Word. You lack understanding and wisdom, you go to the Word. That's, that's where we draw our lifeblood from. Brothers and sisters, we must guard against the consummation being consumed by service and giving little attention to the preaching of God's Word. Like busy bees, we, we go throughout our life thinking that if we just keep working hard for Jesus, everything will work out. But the problem is, friend, if you spend your entire life invested in service and never invest in the Word, you will be shallow at best and frightfully danger of hell at worst. You remember what the men said to Jesus? 
Lord, Lord. Did we not do many good works in your name? Did we not heal people and deliver demons? And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Friend, what a dangerous place it is to be. So close, but yet so far. What are you distracted by? Friend, I just want to encourage you in this moment to prioritize the Word in your life. I know for some of you, if you were honest with yourself, right now is the first time you've heard the Bible since last Sunday. Maybe if you're super spiritual and you came on Wednesday night, you might have heard it there too. We ought not to be so far from God and His Word. It is where God communes with us in His Word. Not in nature. Not in the clouds of the sky. Not in the sun and the stars. God communes with His people through His Word. We ought to see that through the study of God's Word, we come to know and understand Him better. We get a glimpse of our own lives and believe in Him. And trust Him. The disciples learned their lesson, I believe. I believe they were privy to this whole conversation. That's just how Jesus walked. That's how, that's how, he, that's how he did things. He was, he was gracious to expose sinners. And the disciples learned their lesson, I believe, because what follows in chapter 11 is, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We don't want to assume. We don't want to be about service. We want to be about learning how to pray. And so we find there in in chapter 11 that we as Christians ought to persistently trust in God through prayer. We see something beautiful happen here. That sitting under the teaching of Jesus naturally leads one to want to talk to God. That the Word is what propels prayer. That as we meditate on the Word, there's a sense of prompting in us, of of urgency to want to communicate back to God. God has spoken to us, and we respond by trusting Him, by saying, God, You are in control. Look with me here. This section here in chapter 11 that we read is divided into three parts. First, in verses 1 through 4, we have the content of the prayer. And this, again, is the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer. Uh, This is not Jesus' prayer, but our prayer to God. Then we see there in verses 5 through 8, a parable. Jesus tells a parable, and it is a lesson of shameless persistence that we ought to shamelessly ask God. We ought never be ashamed of anything we ask. And then finally, Jesus concludes with the confidence in prayer. Notice here first the content of prayer. I'll, I'll walk through these very quickly. We we don't have a ton of time, but, but I hope to spend a few moments on them. Number one, we see, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus says, pray like this. I, wanna, I want you to see implicitly something. Number one, Jesus prayed, uh, you should pray. If the eternal Son of God saw it fit that he needed to commune with his Father through prayer, how much more we who are his children. We ought to commune with God through prayer. Disciples, when you pray, verse 2, 
Have you ever wondered why we need to pray? Have you ever been like, why do we even need to pray? I mean, God knows everything. He's in control of everything. I believe in the sovereignty of God. Why do I need to pray? Simply, number one, you're commanded to pray. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That should just kind of check all the boxes. You're commanded to pray. It is implied that you communicate to God through prayer. To not pray is to disobey. We pray not because God doesn't know and we're just sort of informing Him what's going on. Rather, the point of prayer is not information, but glorification. The glory of God. We pray to bring Him glory. We are expressing our need of Him. Our request, honor Him. They make much of Him. Because He is recognized in prayer as our only hope. That's why we're praying. We're at, we're at the end of our, our rope. It's, a, it's implied we ought to pray. We see also here the intimacy of prayer. Father, this would have not been recognized as acceptable to Jews. They didn't run around talking to God this way. What we see through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a new relationship is forged that we call God Father. It's an intimate relationship. Friend, don't let it be a loss on you that this language is used by Jesus. He wants you to understand that you can approach God as Father, not as some supreme being that's way out there and distant like the deists believe. No, He is a tender and caring Father. He wants to hear our prayers. We see the priority of prayer also. Hallowed be your name. This is a request in prayer, a petition, that God's name would be hallowed by those around Him. That means that it would be seen as holy and not profaned. That God would be glorified. That He would be seen as the sole provider for His people. It is a request that God's name would be revered for His glory alone. Friend, the point is this. That prayer is ultimately for the glory of God in Christ. Again, we don't pray to communicate information. We pray to give glory where glory is due. Thus, every prayer request has to be about the glory of God. So often when we think about prayer, people begin to ask, well, is it wrong to pray for a new car, a big house, all these wonderful things? He said ask, and he'll give it. Uh, Friend, I, I wonder how your big house is giving God glory. Perhaps that's why we don't pray for that. No, our prayer requests ought to be understood as those that give God glory. We see also here a petition for God's will to be done, a divine will, your kingdom come. Of course, in Matthew's longer version, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This shorter condensed version was provided here. Friend, we see a sense of humility tinged throughout, isn't it? It recognizes God as the ultimate source of all that we need for our physical and spiritual provisions. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. I find R.C. RC Sproul so helpful here. He says, when we speak of the providence of God, his daily provision, that's what we're thinking about, we mean that which by God governs the entire universe. The means by which in his sovereignty he leaves no maverick molecule running loose outside his sovereign authority. Or, as the Apostle Peter says, cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Uh, Friend, what measure of comfort do you take 
in knowing that God cares for you. That he will provide your, provide for you. So your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread in these divine provisions. Then we see there in verse 4 a plea for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins. Jesus teaches us to have a prayer of confession. You ever wondered why we have one in our service now? Well, it's not because we're trying to be cool or reformed or whatever you think it might be. It's because Jesus commanded us to do it, and so we do it. In fact, we don't do anything in our service that Jesus has not explicitly commanded us to do. He commands us to confess our sins, and so we do. Uh, Friend, I wonder, in your personal prayer life, is confession regular? Forgive us our sins. We need to confess our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Only God can forgive sins. It's a recognition that, that He is the only one that can truly forgive. The request is also marked by humility. Notice there this additional line, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It is quite strange that Jesus would include this as an offer of prayer. But it is a reminder, isn't it, to to the, the disciple that when we ask for forgiveness, it is with a clean conscience that we have not withheld forgiveness from others. In other words, we should not expect to receive that which we are unwilling to give. If we are unwilling to forgive others, we should not expect to receive God's forgiveness. God loves a cheerful giver. We know that. That don't apply only to your money. That applies to your forgiveness. If God has given you so much We give so much. If God has forgiven you so much, then we ought to forgive so much. Finally, Jesus concludes there, and lead us not into temptation. This here is a petition for protection. The words seem to imply that God is the source, but that's not Jesus' point. In other words, that God is behind our temptation. No, James makes it clear that no one should to blame God when they're being tempted. Rather, this is a request that God would guard us, protect us from temptation. That we ought to seek God's protection from the wiles of the evil one. Friend, if you want to think more about that, just go to pretty much any psalm in the, in the, in the psalm book, and there you will find David often crying out to God for protection from the evil one. Well, as Jesus teaches, he he wants them to understand the nature by which they make these requests. In other words, they're not just merely to just offer them up in in, in rote, just kind of go through the motions, but rather do so with a spirit of shameless persistence. And that's illustrated in the parable that Jesus tells. He, He tells of a man who comes begging for his friend's provision. Uh, this particular man has some visitors, and it would have been quite shameful for him in this culture to welcome guests in his home and not provide food. And so he goes next door to his neighbor. He says, hey, I've got some friends in town. Uh, They came last minute. I need some bread. You got some bread. And Jesus said it's not because the man was his friend that that he allowed him to come in and get the food, but because of his impudence. In other words, the the idea of impudence is shameless persistence. He wasn't afraid to ask something big, and neither should God's people. 
We should never think we cannot ask big things of our big God. It's a reminder of Abraham as he's praying over the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, He's praying, uh, Father, if there are 50 righteous there, will will you spare the city? Yes, if there's 50 righteous. Well, he knew there wasn't 50 righteous, so he's like, all right, well, if there's 45 righteous, will you say, oh, yes, I'll spare it for it. Uh, He wanted to get down to a small number because he knew there was only a couple righteous there in town. And he persistently banged on the door of heaven, shamelessly asking God to do big things in his life. R.C. Sproul, again, says this, prayer is the greatest antidote to worry. This man was worried about needing to provide, but, but he found the remedy in prayer. This is why Jesus has this helpful reminder, ask, seek, and knock. It is a quite beautiful verbal picture. Ask, seek, and knock. The idea is persistence, like not giving up. Keep going. Keep asking. You know, so many times in prayer, this is what we do. God help me. Amen. And we move on to helping ourselves. Well, God's not going to answer. Friend, we need to learn a dose of patience, right? To trust that God in His perfect timing, in His perfect will, will answer our prayer according to His will. We just prayed that. Your kingdom come. We've already prayed for the divine will. Now we just need to wait and persistently pray and trust that God will communicate. It is a reminder to us that prayer is ongoing. It is not momentary. This is what the Apostle Paul taught, that we are to pray without ceasing. Perhaps you're like me, just find yourself throughout the day, just offering up prayer to God, help me in this moment. Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. Amen. Friend, find it a regular rhythm, not only to have time carved out for intentional prayer, but also this consistent and persistent asking, seeking, and knocking of the Lord. Jesus goes on to speak about the Father's character. This is a motivation to pray, my friend. Look there at verses 11 and 12. What father among you, if he has a son, asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Of course no one would do that. What father would give, give bad gifts to his kid? I mean, clearly, the normative father, and of course there are evil fathers, but, but the normative father is going, to, is going to give good gifts to his kid. He's going to provide for him whatever he asks. And this is an argument from the lesser to greater there in verse 13. If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give? And and you stop right there. And you're like, yes, He's going to give me everything I ask. Give the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, what a letdown. I thought I was getting a new car. I thought I was getting health. I thought I was getting prosperity. I thought I was getting everything I wanted. I thought God was a genie that would provide everything I... No, no, no. You see, God gives you what you need. And do you see it, friend? Your greatest need, my greatest need, has been given to us, and He's in you? The gift of the Holy Spirit? Wow. God gives us everything we need in His Spirit, 
This is, he says, the greatest gift that God has ever given. Well, there goes your whole Christmas celebration. If God gives you everything, you'll get it later. It's okay. If God gives you nothing more, now get this, if God doesn't answer any of your prayers, ever, no prayers ever answer. You're, you're like, you, go, you turn up to heaven and be like, God, I have begged you for my entire life and you, not, you did not answer one of my prayers. God is going to say, I answered all of your prayers when I gave you the Holy Spirit. All of your prayers are answered in him. He's all you need. All you need is me, he says. You get it? You don't need all this stuff. If you have me indwelt in you, You have all the wisdom and knowledge of the eternal God. You have access to the depths and power and riches that are in Christ our Lord. This is why James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. In the context there of James chapter 1, it's in the context of receiving wisdom and knowledge and understanding. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit is exactly that, is to help us understand our difficulties, our trials, that the life of the disciple is marked then by this priority of hearing and praying, of hearing and speaking. Friend, are you seeking to follow Jesus this morning? Then may your life be marked by these two priorities, word and prayer, hearing and speaking. Friend, prioritize the word by regularly gathering with God's people on the Lord's day to hear his word. And I guarantee you this, your faith will be stronger. Regularly pray to God and petition him persistently, boldly, and he will give you the Holy Spirit, which is the greatest gift he'll ever give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that we have received through Christ our Lord. We pray now in this moment as we respond to your word by faith and repentance and hope of eternal life, that you are a God who has spoken to us. We marvel in this wonder that you have not remained silent, but you have told us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And that your ear is always open to every plea that we have, that you truly are our Father, our friend, For your glory and our good in Christ's name.